0: Hey, Pioneers. Welcome to episode number 353 of the Pioneering Today podcast. Today's episode, we are going to be diving into the realm of cooking, wild game. Now, it's a little bit early for most parts of the country before hunting season really begins but we're not that far away. And if you have been like me and you've ever had wild game prepared by someone, and it might've even been you who prepared it, but didn't know the nuances to cooking wild game so that it tastes delicious and it's tender, then this, my friend, is the episode for you. So we're gonna be going over the things that make wild game Taste more gamey. The best ways to remove that gaminess taste from wild game, how to cook wild game, when you can take it straight from the field and straight into the kitchen, when and if you should be aging it and how, how to cook those wild game meats, including special tips for the organ meats so that they are actually delicious and you don't turn your nose up at them. Today's episode, I'm very excited to bring on a special guest, and that is Tammy Trayer. Some of you may know Tammy. She's been on the podcast. It's been quite a few years back. Tammy also has her own podcast called The Mountain Woman Radio, and she has been educating on wilderness survival, off-grid living, and a lot of other things geared around self-sufficiency and health for a number of years. So I'm very excited to have Tammy come back on, share some of her expertise with us and knowledge in this episode. Today's episode is sponsored by the Modern Homesteading Conference. If you missed last week's episode, then let me tell you, we have a very exciting conference coming to the Idaho, for the western side of the United States that the likes have never been seen before. It's next June 30th and July 1st. It'll be at the Kootenai Fairgrounds in Quarter Lane, Idaho, but it is your chance to come and learn in person. We are going to have live butchering demos, how to butcher a pig, how to cut it up, and also how to completely cure the meat with just using salt so we'll be diving into charcuterie we will have live chicken butchering it won't be all about the animals we will have a demonstration on cheese making with raw milk and it's not been completely confirmed yet but we have very high hopes that we may have a tanner and a blacksmith there doing live demos as well we're going to have a lot of presenters there talking about gardening, especially growing crops where we have a shorter, warmer growing season in the Northwest, and how to grow food not only in that short growing season, but also extend the growing season for year round. So there is going to be something for everyone. We'll be having lots on home food preservation. I highly encourage you to go to modernhomesteading.com, modernhomesteading.com, and grab your tickets now. We're over halfway sold out of the VIP tickets. And there is a number, limited number amount of the early bird admission tickets. So we've got a limited amount that we can sell at the early bird price, which is the lowest price that they will ever be offered at. And then the price is going to go up. So highly recommend that you go and grab your tickets if you're interested, especially getting them at that low price before anything sells out and also book your logic. We expect that to book out um, very fast. So now, without further ado, on to today's episode. Tammy,
1: welcome back to the Pioneering Today podcast. Why, thank you. This is so awesome. It's been a while. I'm so glad to be spending time with you this morning. It has been a while. In fact, I was just thinking back to when we met in person and I was trying
0: to remember (laughs) The year, I'm, it had to have been what at least five years ago. Longer,
1: it was. It was 2015 because it was the year before my my surgery. So, I was okay. looking back on that a couple a couple weeks ago and happened to come across those pictures. So funny you say that. Yeah, that was so awesome. <laughs> yeah,
0: gosh, yes, time flies. So, <laughs> anyways, <laughs> I'm glad I'm glad we we got get to you know sit and chat and talk and have you back on and today's episode i'm excited about because i don't have near the experience that you do with wild game you know we've gotten probably about three or four deer and i've cooked a little bit of buffalo but as far as wild game meat i feel like i am still in that beginner phase so i know you guys do a lot of hunting You have a lot of experience with wild game and have for a long time. And this is the first question I even myself have asked this before, but one of the first questions I think when people are looking to start doing wild game and maybe haven't really had it or they've had it prepared by somebody who maybe didn't know how to prepare it the best. And is it true that wild game always tastes really gamey, like that strong, such a strong flavor that a lot of people actually find it,
1: they don't like it. If it is cooked properly, it, you won't even taste the gaminess. Um, oftentimes, when you taste the gaminess, um, it's a result of too fast of cooking and, and um, overdone um, meat. So there is definitely tricks to processing and cooking your game meat. And really, it's not near as hard as people make it out to be. There's some really simple rules to it. And that is, um, for one, we, we hang our meats a little longer, typically, instead of just pulling it from the field and, and right into the freezer, we hang it for a couple days, um, upwards of a week just to allow it to tenderize. And that does help remove some of the gaminess. If you have some, you know, a deer that was in rut, but the key thing is how you cook it and how you prepare it.
0: Okay. I love this. So I should say too, because depending on where people are listening from, I mean, venison is, is a fairly, you know, broad gamut of locations that people can get deer and or elk. So, um, that one is, but what are the types of meats that you guys hunt for and the wild game that you have the most experience with or have experienced
1: cooking? Okay. Small game, rabbits, uh, grouse, quail, turkey. And then we also uh, do the big game, um, your venison, um, you know, whitetail. We also do mule deer, uh, bear, elk, moose, um, antelope. And I was going to say, oh, fish as well. Sorry. We also do fish. So um, that's a long list. No wonder you were like, hold on a second. I know there's more. Wait.
0: (laughs) So Well, aside from fish, I know you wouldn't let uh, fish hang and age, but um, do you also age the poultry? Is that or is that more like when we're talking about the large game,
1: mainly the large game, something else I wanted to mention that there was another one we trap also in the winter months. And one of the things that we procure then to eat is beaver. Um, Beaver tastes very similar to pork. And um, that is something else that we also add to our menus and to our like Thanksgiving and Christmas meals, as well as goose too.
0: Okay. So beaver then is, it's not a red meat. It's more of a a white meat like the pork. I I always, I guess I just assumed in my mind, I've never had beaver, but you brought it up as fascinating because we actually have a slough not too far from us. And there have been some, a lot of beaver activity. Okay. So is it, is it, is it red or it's more kind of like the pink white of pork, not red like beef?
1: It is. It is a darker, redder meat, but it tastes like pork because it's very greasy. It's very fatty. Uh So it has that greasy taste of like pulled pork. Uh, Oftentimes that's how I'll make it. I'll take the back straps and put them in a barbecue, homemade barbecue sauce and cook those on the grill. And oh, my goodness. Actually, my son made the comment to my husband our first year here. He says, from now on, when you're trapping, after he tasted it, he says, from now on, when you're trapping, I'm claiming the back straps and you can't use it for bait. You can't use any of the beaver for bait. So
0: (laughs) (laughs) I think I think the back strap is always like the prime cut. I know, like any time we get a deer, it's like the back strap is your like most coveted cut. Like everybody is so excited to get the back strap. And also because. (laughs) You only get that, you know, the, the one spot of the backstrap. And so it's, it's like this special, you know, it's special because there's not a,
1: a, a lot of it like there is every, you know, all the other pieces together. Exactly. And it's kind of funny because I'm a meat snob. My husband will be the first to tell you that. And I'm like always stabbing really fast to get the certain piece of and cut of meat out of, off the plate. And it's funny because we do kind of fight over things like our son likes the backstrap where my husband and I will go for the heart any of the big game hearts are huge. And oh my gosh, that is like one of the first things we eat, but my son does not like the consistency of heart and liver. So, you know, it's the only two things that the boy doesn't like. So we've given him grace on that.
0: Okay, so um, now that I'm officially salivating and ready for lunch, um, I wanted to to go back uh, just a little bit. So when we're talking about wild game, and I know you said it's more the larger game can age. To give everybody context, too, if they're not familiar, you, you guys live up in the mountains of northern Idaho, correct?
1: Correct, yes.
0: Okay, so when you're hunting, you're having fairly cool temperatures that are pretty consistent, uh, in the environment in which to age the meat.
1: It's true. However, archery season starts in end of August and September, and it's way too warm. So unless you have a freezer where you can actually like a walk-in freezer where you can actually hang the meat. So it varies in the seasons. Definitely rifle season is more of a cooler time, but we've even had warmer times then. So of course you have to be cautious with that. You can't hang meat when it's like 90 degrees. And even, you know, we're really cautious with that because your meat can spoil unless you're smoking it it's not good to hang it when it's warm. So there is that precaution there and you've got to make your best judgment you can there. But if you have a walk-in freezer available to you, whether it's yours or a, a neighbor's or friend's or whatever, if you can hang it for a couple days and just let it hang, um, it really does. It, the meat will get like a crust on it. And when it does that, that's when you know, you, know, you can take it down and, and start butchering it. It just helps it. And it just really makes it a lot, tastier i think
0: yeah we do the same thing with our beef and i'm with you it it it's actually an enzymatic breakdown that ends yes. up happening that that alters the flavor in a good way and also helps to tenderize the meat so we're really yes. big on on that temperature wise um and i know like you know it's just kind of like everybody's best judgment overall but would you say like if it's in the 40 degrees fahrenheit you're fine once you start to approach like mid 50s
1: watch out or Yeah, I would say so, because the key thing you want to, the best an ideal situation would be is if things are freezing at night, but they're warming up during the day, because if they're freezing at night, that will enable the meat to be somewhat frozen and, and it'll be okay if it gets a little warmer, but yes, you know, we're really cautious with that. So I would say that was, that would be a good, a good average. Okay. So From the
0: wild games, like, is there, when you, when you're getting it, um, and I'm thinking perhaps the poultry, but maybe not, is there anything that you're going directly, like, killed to dressing out and then directly into the pot and, or, depending on the size of it, into the freezer?
1: Um, yeah, well, yes, you could, but they end up in our pot instead, but, um, like, grouse and quail, um typically are in a pot right away and we're eating those. Now, um, turkey, I like to soak it in salt water for a day. And same with like the heart and and the liver. By soaking it in salt water, it draws out the blood of the animal from it. So that will also remove the gaminess. Um, a lot of people uh, get really creeped out by liver. Liver is one of my favorite foods and when you um slice that and soak that and draw that water out or that blood out and what i do is i'll put it in the fridge and put it in the salt water and then i'll i'll drain it and do it again with clear clean water just to get it out of the blood that it's sitting in and that really helps to enhance the flavor as well as tenderize because you've you've added your salt Um, but uh Typically, I just we like to do that just because it removes that that gaminess from the animal and gives a little bit of time to sit before we we feast on it. And again, it breaks down the enzymes. Yeah,
0: I'm curious with the liver because I've heard
1: I don't know if my mom used to do this when I'm little. I'll have to ask her now.
0: But I've heard Mm -hmm. also people saying, especially for things like liver, because liver can have um, a strong, almost metallic taste. And so when you're saying you're soaking it in the and that saltwater brine, that's, and that's helping pull the blood out. I'm assuming that would help with that taste, but I have heard yes. people say as well, um, with wild game and different cuts to help with that, that they soak it in milk. Have you ever heard that?
1: Yes. Yeah. And that, that works just as well. I just go for the salt because I usually have that on hand versus the milk. When we had our goats, I had milk on hand, but I don't always have milk on hand now. So I go for the salt, but yes, you can use milk. And some people use vinegar water as well. So you've got options, but the salt really, if if you're familiar with how salt works, it really draws blood out of things. Like even if you're, um, you have blood on your clothing and you soak it in salt water, it'll pull the blood out of your clothing. So when you wash it, you don't have that blood stain in there. So that is that will definitely remove that metallic taste because that metallic taste that you're tasting is the blood and here's two tips for you with heart and liver it's actually the same tip but you can use it for both things heart and liver both have an outer layer on them like a um, membrane on them and a lot of a lot of times people don't remove that. So it's tough when you go to eat it. I actually take the time and it is time consuming, but it is so worth it. I peel that layer off and it's really simple to do. You just really can get a grip with it with your thumb and the edge of the knife and just pull. And you can peel that, that um, membrane layer off the heart and the liver. And then that will really open it up to pull the blood out. And then when you make that, it's like a piece of meat. It doesn't, it's, you know, typically liver has a very different consistency, but when you take that membrane off, you are releasing a a piece of meat from that membrane. So then you can fry it up with your liver and onions and, you know, the kids will most likely like it. The other thing I do with liver that changes it completely is I dip it in eggs, you know, I whip up some eggs and I dip it in the eggs and then I dip it in um, seasoned flour and fry it up with the liver and onions after I've taken that membrane off and soaked it. So um, honestly, you can't go wrong. It's like one of our favorite meals. I also do that with the heart. I bread the heart as well sometimes too, or you can parboil it.
0: Okay. My husband will bread the heart. And I have to say as a kid, the only cut I did not like was the liver. Like I'm even fine eating tongue. Um, I, right, I know tongue, right. tongue <laughs> sliced into to sandwich meat is is just fabulous. Um yep but the liver I never really liked as a kid. And part of it was the strong smell when it was cooking and it was that metallic taste, but I'm, I'm eager now to one to remove the membrane and then to try your soaking tip because that's not one. um, I think it was just like I had in my mind, like it's the one cut. I don't kind of like your son. Like I like, and we use everything (laughs) else from the animal. I don't like the liver. So I really haven't even bothered with it, honestly. And I know it's so good for you. Like I, I read all the things that, you know, say how wonderful, you know, like it's so packed with nutrients, like, like organ meat is such a good thing for us to consume. And I'm like, well, I do a lot of other stuff. That's really good. That's the one I'm not. But, but now you're, you're convincing me. We actually have our butcher date in September. We'll be butchering uh, for cow liver. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to take your tips. I'm going to give it a go um, and give
1: this one a try. And so I'll, I'll report back um, after, after we went through that. I bet you'll be hooked. It really makes a huge difference. That's one of the biggest preparation changes you can make with your meat and also just slow cooking time on that and not overcooking it. Um, I like it when it gets a little crunchy on the outside with the breading. So that makes it really nice. And then it's nice and tender on the inside. But, But yeah, I'm right there with you. My mom used to annihilate game meat. It wasn't until I was on my own and hunting on my own and cooking my own meats that I actually enjoyed them. Growing up, I was eating hockey pucks and they were foul. It tasted like the animal smelled. It was absolutely disgusting. And I didn't know game meat could taste so good until I finally started doing my own. So, you know, if if you've been tainted and you've been You've been jaded because of those things. Give it a second try and follow the tips from today. And I promise you, you will be hooked. Because one of the greatest things for us here is that we procure probably 90% of our meat from right out our front door. And it costs us our hunting license. And we are very blessed that we don't have cornfields surrounding us, GMO cornfields and GMO Soybeans and things like that. We are getting non-GMO, organic meats right out our front door. Uh, you know, so it's just it's so awesome. And granted, we do have to work harder than that. I'm, but it, it's, we don't have to go far. Is what I'm getting at. So, you know, it's it's definitely a way to save yourself money and and also the skill set is a life skill. My son knew it at age seven. And as soon as he could hunt, he was hunting. And let me share this with you: my son is high functioning autistic. So don't put limitations on your kids; they can learn these things. I promise you.
0: Yeah, you know it's funny. My son, he's just now 17. um, He's a better shot than I am, truly. (laughs) Uh, You know, we. um, And so when when I need something, um, you know, when we need something dispatched or whatever, I actually will just go. I I don't know what I'm going to do when he moves out. I guess it will force me to become better. But um, I'll be like, Landon, I need such and such done, or I'm like, hey, there's a coyote out, you know, stacking the chickens, like go grab the gut, you know, anyways, and he, he's went through hunter safety course, like I just feel like in this day and age, I have to put that out there. I hope if you're listening to this oh. podcast and interested in this, that you would know that already. But, you know, we do yes. take it, you know, we do take safety very seriously. And one of the things Absolutely. that I found, well, just because we're on the subject of hunting, um, if you're not familiar with hunter safety course, it. Safety is in the title and that's really what it is. It's all about mm-hmm. um, safety with a firearm, um, safety when you're hunting in groups, safety when you're hunting by yourself, you know, safety, it, it's so safety focused. It's not right. actually a teaching you, it's not really teaching you how to hunt. I Mm-mm. mean, not, not like how to, to track an animal and, and be a better shot, et cetera. It's right. really on how you stay safe and all scenarios. With a gun. Like, how should you handle a gun when you're going through a gate? I mean, like and I don't think that people really understand that if they haven't went through it. It's I think that everybody I wish it was still in school. I think even if you don't think you're going to be a hunter, just knowing what is safe. So then a child, if they are around people um, or at a friend's house and there's guns and they see that other child using that firearm in a way that is not safe because they've been taught what is safe, then they can immediately be like, hey, like that is not what you do. But if they don't have that knowledge they don't went,
1: have, no. it. They, they don't yeah. know. So anyways, I, this is yeah. total side tangent, but I just, but that's good. That. No, that's I'm, really good. Cause I'm, I'm right there on board with you because, you know, so often people get so up in arms over guns, but if you, if you teach safety first, I mean, that was the first thing we always did, even with a BB gun, you know, a BB mm-hmm. gun is not a toy, you know, and it needs everything, everything that we do here on our homestead is a traditional skill and, and it's gotta be respected and all those things are no different. And people just form an opinion based on the media, but really, I mean, having these skills, like you said, even if they aren't going to ever hunt, just knowing, you know, how to, how to utilize them and what to do and in the event that they'd ever have to, they know, you know, so I think it's so important. I'm on that. I'm right there on that, that soapbox with you. Yeah. I knew you would be, but
0: yes, (laughs) yeah. Um, So I do have a question with you because this is one where we, and obviously it's not wild game, but we raise our own meat chickens. And I've had a lot of people come to me and say, well, I tried meat birds. Either they got them from someone who had raised them and butchered them or they had butchered them themselves. And they're like, the meat is tough. And I'm like, Mm. well, how are you treating that bird? Are you putting it from butcher directly into the freezer or are you letting it rest in the fridge for 2 days so it goes through rigor mortis and then freezing it and all I will say 100% of my personal experience and talking with people they have contacted the farmer if they didn't do it themselves and they were froze the day they were butchered and they're not yep. letting it thaw in the fridge cuz you can do it both ways um yep. they're not letting it thaw in the fridge for 2 days before cooking it and so it's really tough and once they find that out and then they make that change they're like oh my gosh it's so tender and moist, like it made such a difference. So I'm curious, um, with the the wild game, especially because we've been talking about grouse, which is by the way, my absolute favorite. Um, I know I like mine it. too. Oh, <laughs> grouse breast meat is phenomenal. Anyhow, um, but with, um, like the turkey and the quail and all of those. So is there anything to that? Like if you're killing it and it's going into the pot within an hour, is it fine? Or do you let it sit and rest? Or have you noticed anything like that in particular, with the poultry,
1: um, turkey especially, I have noticed it that it can be really tough. Um, we combat that with how we cook things, um, but also with what you're explaining. You know, a lot of time, a lot of places flash freeze. That was not coming out well. Their um, their poultry and things, and I I'm really um, about letting it set a little bit before like with the turkey going in the salt water. It'll go in the salt water and then I'll package it and freeze it if I'm not cooking it right away. Now the, the grass because it's so small uh and we always we always call it a hoardivore instead of an hors d'oeuvre it's our hoardivore but um that I just put in the pan. Um, now as far as the turkeys go um I have friends who have, have made comments on how tender and juicy our turkey is and they can't believe it because they're afraid to cook wild turkey because they've cooked it and it's tough as you know a nail mm-hmm. and what i do with my meats i've always done this we had a, a wood cook stove or a wood a wood stove in the previous homestead. that now i have a wood cook stove and i do the same thing there i would put it in the pot the night before i would season it good put water in it and just let it simmer on the cook stove all night long low heat low and slow And then we wouldn't eat till like noon, one o'clock the next day. And I would keep it on that whole time. And you'd open that lid and the meat was just falling off the bone. Now, if you only put it in the oven and you cook it, you know, at 375 and you put it in there for two hours, you're going to have a tough bird. Game meat is made to be cooked low and slow. And I like to cook it for a long period of time. I mean, there's no energy wasted on my wood stove or on my wood cook stove when I just have something sitting there and uh, it's tantalizing us all, you know, with the smells. But um, that is how we cook our game meat. And I'll tell, and I do that in the sun oven too. Um, I I cook my chickens in the sun oven and I put them in at seven o'clock in the morning and supper time, the meat's falling off the bone. So the key thing is low and slow on any game meat. Even when I'm, I'm putting a grouse in the oven in a pan, if I cook it that way, you know, I'll put it in and let it cook for a, a bunch of hours versus setting it, you know, for um, 45 minutes kind of thing. So I'm, I've always done that and just prolonging the cooking time on my game meats. And it is just amazing.
0: Yeah, I think because in my at least with the animals that we have harvested that have been wild. Um, they don't have the fat marbling and the fat layers generally that you get from conventional. I mean, even, you know, like a grouse, you know, that's out in the wild or venison, you know, they don't, they don't have that fat. And so like what you're saying that the low, the slow and low cooking time is going to help with that because there's not all of that fat to help tenderize
1: it as it's cooking. If you do it at those faster, hotter temperatures. Correct. Correct. Now you could do it at the faster, hotter, but I would add fat. Like I would add butter or bacon grease or something like that. But that's, that does play a huge role in it. And something you said trigger. Oh, um, when I do my Turkey and my chickens, I do them backwards from what, you know, like when you get a chicken, say you go to the grocery store, you buy a chicken and it has little, um, thermometer thing stuck in it. Yeah. Breast down. Right. I always cook breast down and flip it at the too. end. Yes. yes, yes. I don't too. know why like,
0: people have been taught the opposite. And then you have to cover I it know. with tin foil because it dries <sighs> out. I'm like, no, don't cook that it that
1: way. Drives me nuts. I'm like, yes. who thought that up? Because when you stick it down, breast down, just think of all the juices and how tender your breast meat's going to be. Because most people, that's why. Yeah, it ends up like, excuse the expression, but this is what my family's always said, dry as a fart. So <laughs> it's just terrible.
0: Yes. Yeah, no, we do that. The only the only trouble I run into that is if it's a really big turkey, then it takes my husband and I both to actually flip it at the end. I can do the yeah. chickens fine by myself and the and the smaller stuff, but if it's one of the really loud Thanksgiving turkey, it takes yeah. one of us holding the the roasting pan. And then the other one with a set of tongs, you know, to flip that baby over towards the end, just to get it a nice crisp on the skin on the breast side. But yeah, that's exactly. The only way, that's the only way that I cook whole, whole birds at all. I'm glad you brought yep. that point up because a lot of people, um, it was so funny. We actually went to my brother-in-law's house, my husband's brother and for Thanksgiving and him and his girlfriend were having this debate and she's like, it, I'm like not calling about. It was really funny though. Cause she's like, he's telling me to put it in upside down. I mean, and she was just like, that's not the way you do it. And I looked at her, I said, I'm sorry to side with him, but he's
1: absolutely right in this case, put it in upside down. <laughs> <laughs> so it was fine. <laughs> and she'll thank you for it forever. Yes. Yeah. Once you try
0: it and you're like, oh, oh yeah. my, it's like one of those things, just like, where has this been all of my life? But I don't, we were all, yeah. I don't know at what point in time it became standard, but I think everybody was taught, I don't know if it was home ec or and certain cookbooks, whatever to do it the opposite. And yeah, it's just silly. So now, you know that you've got this in plenty of time before Thanksgiving and roasting a bird, (laughs) put
1: it in upside down. Yes. Yep. Yep. And, and a good, a good temperature is like 270, 275. If you're cooking on a regular, in a regular oven, um, I, this is so terrible, but I've progressed to a place in my life probably like 10, 12 years ago where I don't use recipes And I don't use like, I I don't have a means of checking the temperature. I just go by look and by feel. So I'm, I'm terrible when it comes to when people say like, what temperature or, or what's the recipe? I'm like, well, let me think about what I threw in there, you know, kind of thing. So, but 270, 275 is a really good temperature for meats to cook at a low temperature and just leave them in longer and just monitor them. Um, just keep an eye on them and just make sure there's lots of liquid in it, you know, because that, that otherwise it will dry out.
0: Yeah. Now, when you're cooking it that long and slow, I'm assuming you're doing it and obviously to be able to put liquid in, are you doing it in a Dutch oven or a roasting pan with a lid or is this yeah. just like a, okay,
1: it, so it's yeah. a closed
0: container inside the oven?
1: Yeah. Or even on top, you know, I found that I get the same result other than that. Um, if you do in the oven and you take the lid off, you can get your meats a little crispy on top if you like that. Um, and it depends on the cut of meat and the things we're doing like a turkey. I would like the, or the chicken, I'd like the skin to be a little crunchy. So I'll take the lid off, but a roast, um, or like the beaver roast instead of the back straps, you no, know, just stick that in the oven on top of the stove, whichever with a lid on it and, and just make sure that it's like cocked. Just a little bit, especially if you have it on top, because your your liquid will want to cook out all over the sides. So you'll have your stove a mess, but just cock it just a little bit so there's a little um air escape there. And and that way the moisture stays in and it, it you'll have such amazing meats.
0: Okay. So how do you know how to prepare each animal? You know, temperature for cooking and cooking time. And I know you kind of covered that a little bit just now when you said you know like 270 275 and as far as cooking time just kind of keeping an eye on it i'm assuming bone in if you're doing the whole animal obviously it's larger and the bone in is going to take to be a longer cooking time versus uh some cuts that don't have that but is it just been kind of trial and error on how to prepare each animal and
1: cut yeah because kind of um i've just learned with game meat especially since how I grew up and knowing that it was so foul initially and knowing that it could taste so good later, it was a matter of just coming, figuring out what was good, you know, cause like a rabbit is much smaller than a Turkey. So if you were cooking up a, a rabbit, you wouldn't need it on as long. But um, as I said, I cook, I cook most of my meats overnight. When I, when I know that the next day it's, it's, that's my form of a slow cooker. I live off grid, so I can't use a slow cooker. So that is my form of a slow cooker. I'll put my meat on the night before, let it on the stove, wood stove and do it that way. Um, but if, if you were to want to do this and you'd want to put it in, I, I'd say like probably two, two and a half hours, um, low and slow for like a chicken. And then like, if you were doing a rabbit, um, be a little less kind of, but just experimenting with what works because like a a wood cook stove is very different than an electric stove. And an electric Mm -hmm. stove is very different than a gas stove. So dependent on what you have, you you do have that area of trial and error as well. My key thing is if the meat falls apart or the meat is falling off the bone, then it's ready to go. So that's kind of how I have always monitored my meats. Now, when you're frying up the heart and and liver and things like that, um, the key thing is you're going to keep just flipping it for a while because um, the juices and um, the, the the you'll see blood just like if you're cooking up a steak um, coming out of uh, the tops of the meat. So you just keep flipping it so you get a nice like if you're breading it that you get a nice crust on the outside, but that you have enough time for the inside. To cook. And, you know, you can always take a piece off of the, out of the pan and cut it to make sure the inside is done well enough. And steaks are this other thing. Um, A lot of people like their stuff well done. I was always a well done kind of girl, but I've found that like medium well is, I don't like rare meat, but medium well, you've got a lot of flavor and, and um, really good meat. So, You know, you're going to have to play around to find what your liking is because maybe you like meats done well done. So but when you're cooking in the pan, if it's falling apart and off the bone, you know, you've you've got it ready to put on the table.
0: Yeah. You know, one thing that uh, my husband actually taught me because he grew up in a family that did hunt, whereas my dad didn't hunt. So if we did get venison, it was just like if my brother, my brothers were out of the house by the time I was a child. So if they got one, like they would sometimes bring my parents, you know, some venison. And that was kind of my only experience with venison. But my mom would treat it very much like beef. But Uh she would, I think because she was nervous that it was wild game, that she was nervous that maybe it was that it needed to be cooked at higher temperatures for like really like done, done, like extremely well done. And so I never liked it because it was very tough. It tasted (laughs) extremely gamey, like all of those things, which I I tell her fully to this day. I'm like, my mother is an excellent baker. Um, I don't let her cook meat very often. (laughs) And she knows it. So when my husband and I got married, he had been around wild game a lot more because his brother and and parents, grandparents, et cetera, all hunted. And so he would slice the venison thinner than than anything I had seen, like my mom would cut it. So he would slice it really thin. Um, but that way you didn't have to cook it as long in order to get it done. And like the flavor and the texture was just like night and day. And and even now to this day, bless his heart. I'm still like, oh, you better cook it because you cook it so good, honey. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of the nights I don't have to cook when we get it. But I, I think there was something to the way he was sli- he was slicing it thinner and to like your testament that way. It was getting done inside, but you didn't have to cook the outside so long in order to get the interior done that it was that hockey puck or really strong flavor
1: thing. And and funny you mention that because what we do a lot, um, I love steak, but it's harder to cut the steaks on on the deer and the elk. You know, we do a lot of things manually. So, um, you know, we don't have uh, an electric saw or anything to be slicing the animals. We do it by hand. So what we do is we'll, we'll do a lot of roast and oftentimes we'll thaw a roast and then slice it thin and then fry it up. So, and it is always sliced thin and it always tastes so much better when it's thin than when it's thick for that reason. And, and, I hate when you like bite into a piece of meat and it's like really chewy and you feel like if it's chew Ugh. forever and ever yes. and ever. So, um, so that is a really good point and a really good tip because that's exactly what we do. Even when I cube my meat for anything, it's small, small cubes and, um, and thin slices. So yeah, that plays a big role. So yeah, it's good. You mentioned that. Yeah.
0: I don't know about you, but we... <laughs> So when I was little, and my mom cooked to me, bless her heart. I'm totally roasting her here, but this is all things that we laugh and and talk about. So don't anybody think I'm talking ill of my mother. But um, like you would chew and chew the steak, and especially as a kid, I'm like it never chewed down to where you could swallow it. So I would get tired of chewing it. So I would excuse myself to go to the restroom, and I don't know why I didn't spit it out in the toilet and flush it. I wasn't thinking that far ahead. But I would go (laughs) and spit it out underneath our couch. I mean, I was little. I'm talking like three or four years old. Like I was little. And I would spit it out underneath the couch and then come back in. And my mom said for the longest time, she could not figure out we had a cat, and she couldn't figure out why are there these dried pieces of meat underneath this couch every time I move it to vacuum. And then she finally caught me and was like, stop doing that. But then she didn't make me eat the steak anymore.
1: (laughs) That's hysterical. That's hysterical. Now I have a question for you. Do you guys eat the gizzard of... The chicken and the turkey my husband does
0: when it's animals that we are butchering ourselves like we'll he'll save the gizzard from the chicken right. and, and fr- bread it and fry it up um, yeah. we have not raised turkey and we don't have wild turkey over on this side of the mountains to hunt so if I buy turkey from somewhere else even though I usually buy an organic turkey at Thanksgiving time I don't know I guess I don't and I'm not sure why I think I have it in my head that I'm not exactly sure how 100% it was raised, even though I'm still right. eating the full bird. So I tend right. not to use organ meat from animals that were not either hunting or right. raising or, and
1: harvesting ourselves. I get that. Yeah. A lot of people don't eat the gizzard. That's one thing that we fight over. here. The gizzard is so good. You just need to clean it really good. But I totally get that, you know, even in how they're butchering it and how they're handling it and processing it, you do really truly become a meat snob once you start butchering your own meats. I mean, we raised our own chickens um, on the other homestead as well. And, you know, you, you do get spoiled by your good own wholesome meats. I mean, there's just nothing better. There's nothing better knowing where your meat comes from and how it's been fed. And that is just priceless.
0: Yeah, I agree. hundred percent. I, you know, I yeah. even have people who have only had store-bought meat. And then they'll get a a beef from us or some chicken from us or something like that. And it's so fun because they're like, I can (laughs) never go back. And I'm like, yes, but there is that much of a pronounced difference there. There really is. Yeah. And it's really amazing. And I hope that more and more people get to experience that, uh, as, as time goes on and there's kind of more awareness and all of that stuff. So Tammy, thank you yeah. so much for coming on today. I always learn so much from you and really enjoy a conversation. So for those who are wanting to follow along more with your guys's journey, because you guys are doing some very cool thing with, with things with off-grid living and building and on a new property, where's the best spot
1: for folks to connect with you? Um, you can find our website at Treyer wilderness.com it's t-r-a-y-e-r wilderness.com and on instagram and also at breathe to healing.com and on instagram Um, those are the two places where i'm really focusing my attention both educating on off-grid and living and and uh, sustainability and wilderness survival and then also health and healing. That is my second, well, almost my first passion anymore, but uh, I've been on a six year healing journey. So it has become an extreme passion of mine.
0: Okay, great. And we will have links guys to all of those in the blog post that accompanies this episode in the show notes. So you'll uh, get to go and check that out and see all the, the fun and amazing things that Tammy and her family are doing. So Tammy, thank you so much for joining me today. It was such a pleasure getting to catch back up with you. Yes.
1: Likewise. Thank you so much. This was a lot of fun.
0: Well, I hope that you enjoyed that episode as much as I did, got some great tips, and will be using them to cook and try wild game with your family. Again, if you want to have more in-person live training, check out modernhomesteading.com for the Modern Homesteading Conference. And I can't wait to be back here with you next week. So until then, blessings and mason jars for now, my friends. Mm -hmm. Thank you.